Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Three, two, one. When I'm working out, I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer, Jim Calhoun. NASCAR icon, Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Here we Welcome in, everybody. Episode 306 of the podcast. It is Sweeping America, the Air Tour Sports Podcast. It is Thursday, October 15th, 2020. And boy, oh boy, do I have a heck of a show for you. Obviously, it goes without saying, the big story right before I come on. I spent about a half an hour prepping notes for this show, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Nick Saban tests positive for coronavirus, so obviously it goes without saying that that will lead the show. Obviously, it also goes without saying that we hope Coach Saban is okay. Right before I started recording, he conducted a press conference around 7.30 Eastern time where he says that he is feeling fine, so that is first and foremost what is important. Glad to hear that, but obviously it has a big impact on Saturday's game against Georgia, assuming the game itself is played. So we will talk about Saban and Corona, Georgia Alabama, and then preview the rest of college football. I'll give you my gambling picks. We will transition. It became official. The one-time transfer rule will go into place in January 2021. Essentially, players will be able to transfer from school to school one time throughout their career. I don't like it, but there's nothing I can do. And then a little bit of fun news. For the first time ever, Las Vegas will host the NCAA tournament. Kind of a cool story there, so I'm going to get into that. Then after that, How about this for a guest? Remember last episode I told you that I had a random guest, but a really fun guest? Well, it happened, people. Nick Nurse, the head coach of the Toronto Raptors, uh, as best I can tell, the first ever coach to win an NBA title to join the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. He joins me at the end of the show, and I'll tell you this, guys. He is a really interesting dude. He coached overseas. He coached in the D League, the G League, and now he is the head coach of the Toronto Raptors, where he led them to an NBA title last season. Uh, We talk about his time coaching overseas, his time with with Phil Jackson, his time coaching Kawhi. Why? what that was like, but really fun interview with a really cool guy, Nick Nurse, the head coach of the Toronto Raptors. All right, before we get started on the actual show, I want to remind you, please make sure that you are subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. You can do it on iTunes, Podcast Addict, if you have an Android, the Podcast Addict app is the way to go. Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, wherever you listen to podcasts, please make sure that you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Also, make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Really does help us move up those iTunes charts. And of course, make sure you're following on social media at Aaron Torres Pod on Twitter, at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram, Aaron Torres Writer on Facebook. If you have a Facebook account, go ahead and, and follow us 
us there for uh, this podcast, as well as, of course, uh, my articles and things of that nature. And finally, as I've mentioned several times, did start up a YouTube channel, clip off little snippets of this show, fun interviews. So if you miss anything on this show, make sure to find me on YouTube as well. All right, people, let's get into it. There is no more time to waste. And as I said, I spent about, I spend sometimes on like a busy Sunday show, I'll spend upwards of about an hour preparing for this show. But during a general Thursday, I will prepare probably 30, 45 minutes, was doing that today, was doing that here on late Wednesday when I log onto the internet and Nick Saban has tested positive for coronavirus. And as I said off the top, first and foremost, I want to make it clear, this is bigger than football. I do hope he's safe. I do hope he is okay. Obviously, anyone who listens to this show knows that I kind of am, you know, I'm not as as consumed with worrying about every single case of coronavirus, but it also goes without saying that Nick Saban being a little bit older, being 68 years old, uh, he is at a higher risk than someone, say, my age in my early to mid-30s. And so, obviously, look, first and foremost, we hope Coach Saban is okay, Um and we hope that, that, that he's fine, and it sounds like he's fine because, as I said, right before I recorded, uh, he, he did a, a, a press conference where he it was obviously via Zoom from his house where he basically said he feels fine, he's asymptomatic, and in true Nick Saban fashion, he said he is coaching from his house. Apparently, he has a video monitor uh, set up at the house so he can watch practice. He has a manager on the phone, and every time he sees something he doesn't like, he gets in the manager's ear to get in the player's ears they'll run the play over he'll get he'll chew out the players whatever he's got to do so it appears as though he will be fine but this is obviously a monkey wrench in this game and so I do think it's important before we go forward for me to just say a couple quick things uh one as I'm recording they are currently in the process of I guess doing a second test to confirm the first one with Nick Saban so there's a possibility that maybe he isn't positive and maybe he will be able to coach on the sidelines Saturday but as of right now he will not be in the stadium Steve Sarkeesian the former Washington and USC head coach who is now Alabama's offensive coordinator will be running the show and finally it's also worth noting that As of right now, Saban and the AD, Greg Byrne, are the only people that have tested positive in the Alabama football facility. There is, of course, the possibility that more tests come back positive and that the game, in fact, has to be canceled. But as I'm recording right now, 7.30 Eastern time on Wednesday night, Nick Saban will not be in the stadium. Steve Sarkeesian will be calling plays, and the game is still on. And so from that context, that is how I'm going to preview the game. On the football side of things, I'll be honest, coming into the game, I actually liked Alabama. And the crazy thing is, you guys know that I have been on Georgia all offseason long. I do believe that Georgia has the best defense in college football, especially relative to the competition. I mean, in theory, somebody statistically might be a little bit better. Somebody might have better numbers across the board, but they haven't played the level of competition that Georgia has with both Auburn and Tennessee being ranked in the top 25. 
My concern with Georgia, though, however, remains the offense. And I think the offense has actually looked good. I think Stetson Bennett, the quarterback, has been a great story across college football this year, literally going from the fifth string spot back uh, three or four weeks ago. I guess it was probably about six, eight weeks ago now. But he beat out uh, Jamie Newman, the, the transfer from Wake Forest, who quit the team. He beat out JT Daniels, the USC transfer. He beat out Dewan Mathis, who was a highly ranked recruit. And so now he's the head. He's now the starting quarterback, and I think for the most part he's been phenomenal. I actually think he's looked really good. I think he's looked better than anyone could have possibly imagined. But if you follow college football, you know that the biggest criticism of Kirby Smart throughout his time at Georgia is that his quarterbacks are somewhat limited, and that he kind of puts handcuffs on them. And I think that's coming into play this year. By the way, it's very ironic because he had probably the most dynamic quarterback in college football on his roster in Justin Fields. Justin Fields, of course, transfers to Ohio State. But as it pertains to Kirby Smart, and listen, I've done my Kirby Smart spiel a bunch, and I do think he's he's really, uh, uh, I think he's coaching really well this year, but that has been the issue. The issue has been, does he put too many handcuffs on his quarterbacks? And I think this year he is. Now, maybe in his defense, listen, he's the guy at practice every single day. Stetson Bennett is a former walk-on. And so, yeah, like you're not going to just, you know, it's not going to turn into the Mike Leach air raid when you have a fifth-string quarterback that's a former walk-on. You're not just going to throw the ball all over the field. But I do think that it's going to be a completely different deal playing Georgia or playing Auburn at home and playing Tennessee at home and then going on the road to play Alabama. I just think it's a different deal, right? I kind of talked about it last week with Jarrett Garantano, the Tennessee quarterback. He looked great at home against Missouri. Jeremy Pruitt's aggressive. He's going for it on fourth down. He's doing all this crazy stuff. And I said last week, as I previewed the Georgia-Tennessee game, I said, is Jeremy Pruitt really going to open it up with Jarek Garantano that way when he's on the road against the top five team? And I think it's largely the same thing with Kirby Smart in Georgia. I just don't think he's going to open things up in the biggest game of the season. I think, if anything, he's going to scale things back. And I think we already kind of saw that last week where there was a couple times early in the game, middle of the game, where there's big third downs, big fourth downs, and Kirby Smart either runs the ball, tries to force it down the throat of the defense, or he plays it very conservatively, third and long, uh, either hands the ball off or it's a short pass that doesn't gain. So while Georgia won last week, I think we have to call a spade a spade and say it was because of their defense. Tennessee uh, uh, had a bunch of turnovers late in the game that led to scoring, short scoring drives and field goals, and that was why the game is one-sided as it was. Now, that's not to take away from Georgia, because again, I think they're really good, but I also don't think it, I don't think it was, they, they didn't beat Tennessee by 23 points because they completely opened up the offense. They beat Tennessee by 23 points because their defense was phenomenal, their defense forced turnovers and eventually Tennessee just wore down for being on the field so much in the second half and so when I look at that relative to a game against Alabama I like Alabama and I know that the big topic of conversation with Alabama is of course their defense the way the defense has played over the last couple games 
But I'll be honest, guys, I'm just not as worried as everybody else, right? Like, I understand they gave up 48 points the other day against Ole Miss. I understand that we have never, and I talked about it on Monday's show, we have never seen a Nick Saban coach defense look the way that they did against, uh, against Ole Miss the other night. But I think that's a direct byproduct of Ole Miss. And I talked about it, and I'm going to keep talking about it. I've talked about it since the first week. But Lane Kiffin knows at Ole Miss the only way he is going to beat teams is to put his foot on the gas, keep putting his foot on the gas, and not let up until the final whistle. He knows that he has the worst defense in the SEC, maybe in all of Power 5 football, and he knows that no lead is safe, you can't take your foot off the gas, and you got to keep scoring. And so because of that, I don't think that Alabama is some incredibly awful defense. I think they face the most dynamic offense that they are going to face all season when they played Ole Miss last week. I would also add this. On top of everything else, everyone's so focused on how bad Bama's defense looked, everyone's sleeping on how good the offense is. And again, I know part of it is you're playing Ole Miss. Ole Miss is the worst defense probably in the Power Five. Shout out to Kansas. Kansas with less miles is probably worse. But Ole Miss is right up there in the short conversation of worst defenses in college football. But when I think about Alabama, everyone is so focused on the defense. We're losing track of how incredible this offense is, right? Like I think we all thought in theory that Alabama could take a step back against uh, with Mac Jones instead of Tua. And that's just not happening. Now, maybe they haven't played very good competition, but I'll tell you this, they beat Texas A&M. Texas A&M's a really good football team, and Alabama put up 52 points against Texas A&M the other day. And so when I look at this, this team, everyone's so focused on how bad the defense looked against Ole Miss. By the way, I'd add, they actually looked pretty good the week before against Texas A&M when Texas A&M was basically held to two touchdowns. A&M ended up scoring 24 points, but one of those touchdowns came late. Another one was on a short drive after an interception. But in t- on top of the defense not being as bad as it looked against Ole Miss, everybody's sleeping on the offense. I, I, like, I don't think people understand how good Mac Jones has been this season. Mac Jones, the starting quarterback at Alabama, check this out. First of all, he is completing 79% of his passes, which is just stupid. And I know he hasn't faced a defense like Georgia yet, but 79% of his passes is stupid. It's absurd. It's ridiculous. It is the second best mark in college football, by the way, behind BYU. He is also averaging 13 yards per completion. Again, I know a lot of it was against Ole Miss, but when you average 13 yards per completion over the course of three games, that is an incredible stat. And so when you add him in with the running game, when you add him in with Najee Harris, when you add him in with a running back who is averaging almost seven yards per carry, I just think this offense is awesome. And when I look at the bigger picture of this game, what I see is that I guess the way that I would frame it is that I think Bama's offense will be more successful against Georgia's elite defense than I think Georgia's bad offense will be uh, 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 successful against Alabama's shaky defense. What I do see, what I think is going to happen in this game, and we'll get into the Saban effect in a minute, is that I do think 
that I think it'll be close early. I think Georgia will uh, provide the toughest defense that Bama will have faced all year. But I'll tell you this, Bama's defense I don't think is as bad as people think, and I think they're going to limit Georgia, especially if Georgia isn't aggressive on offense. So could I see it being close for a half? Yes. Could I see Georgia being up 13-10 at intermission? I could. But I also think when you look at the bigger picture of this game, when you look at the bigger picture of how these teams play, I think Alabama has too much big play capability where after a while, it's kind of one of those bend but don't break deals. You bend, you bend, you bend, you bend, you bend, and eventually you snap in half like a twig. And so as good as Georgia's defense is, can they stop Alabama from making those two, three, four big plays over the course of the game? My answer is, I don't really think so. And if they can't, I do like Alabama, and that is why I like Alabama. Now, it's of course important to uh, 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 talk about the Nick Saban effect here because, uh, yeah, Nick Saban's probably not going to be on the sidelines for this game. And so I think that's part of it. Um, I will say seeing Nick Saban's press conference late Wednesday made me feel a little bit more confident. He basically said, it's business as usual. It's no different than when a, a player gets injured. We at Alabama don't make excuses when a player gets injured, so I'm not going to let my guys make an excuse when I am not allowed to be in the stadium. I'd also say I'm sure that Nick Saban will probably be on a monitor giving a pregame speech in the locker room before the game, giving a halftime speech in the locker room at halftime. So I don't know that it's going to be that big of a difference. I would actually say the bigger difference is this. How does it affect Steve Sarkeesian? Because Steve Sarkeesian is used to sitting in the booth, calling plays, just focused on what his offense is doing relative to the other team's defense. Is he going to be able to do that as the quote-unquote de facto head coach of this team? So I will say that, that when this news first happened, again, assuming this game is played, I did kind of think to myself, like, you know, I'll be honest, like, uh, this is bad news for Alabama. But the more that I think about I mean, it, listen, it's still obviously bad news for Alabama. But the more that I think about it, the more that I think that this might not have as big of an impact as I thought uh, and I do still like Alabama because I do think that Nick Saban, his presence will be felt, his presence will be in the stadium, and I do think Alabama will be fine. Really quickly, do want to talk about another couple of the SEC games on the slate. Uh, by the way, really like bizarrely quiet weekend of college football, and I'll tell you, if we don't get Georgia versus Bama, there ain't too much meat on the college football bone this week, but... Uh, that is because there is no, by the way, I, I'm tripping over my words here. There's not much meat on the college football bone. LSU Florida has been canceled. I think most of the big 12 is off this week and the big 10 actually starts next week. So at least we got that going for us, but it's basically ACC football and SEC football, but we're already down two SEC games with no Mizzou Vandy. And now we're down a second game without LSU Florida. So Safety first, of course, but let's hope that for our entertainment purposes, we do get Bama, Georgia, because there's not much left on the schedule. As far as the other games, listen, I think probably you could make the argument that the biggest, most important game in terms of a team season, in terms of what is at stake, I think you could say is probably Kentucky, Tennessee, because when I look at that game, this is what I see. I see two programs that had really high expectations coming into this season, really believe that they had a chance to do something special, and one team is going to be really upset after this game. 
Kentucky is currently one and two. We've talked about Kentucky a ton, but they got robbed at Auburn. They lost by one point against Ole Miss. But I don't, you know, for a team that is coming off two really successful seasons, including a 10 win season a few years ago, like, you don't want to fall to one and three when you still have Georgia coming next week. You haven't played Florida yet. And by the way, you got Bama put on the schedule this year as well. It could be really, really, really bad if Kentucky does fall to one and three. Uh, And from the Tennessee perspective, it's kind of the same deal. If Tennessee loses this game, they fall to two and two. They still got Bama. They still got Florida, and they have a crossover game with Texas A&M that wasn't originally scheduled that is now on the schedule. So neither of these teams wants to lose, uh, but I think to me like what's fascinating about this is kind of just what we get from each offense, right? And I kind of talked about Tennessee a minute ago, but the story here is their quarterback. It is Jarrett Garantano. It is this senior that is so hot and cold, so you know up and down, whatever you want to use. But I, we just don't know what we're going to get from him, right? Like, like you look at two weeks ago against Missouri. He looks like a senior quarterback. He's poised. He's calling stuff in the pocket. He's doing this. He's doing that. There's no pass rush on him. He's got plenty of time. He looks like freaking Joe Montana back there throwing dimes. Last weekend, not so much. Georgia gets a real pass rush on him. And while I hate to be critical of college kids, I have to call a spade a spade. I have to be honest. And he just looked rushed, and he looked, I don't know if scared's the right word, I don't think he's physically afraid, but made some really dumb plays and had three turnovers in the second half. All three turnovers led to points for Georgia, 13 points total, and all of a sudden, you're looking at that Georgia game, and you're thinking, oh my God, Georgia dominated Tennessee, they win 41 to 20, 44 to 21, 23 point win. Well, if Garantano doesn't turn the ball over three times, you don't give him 13 points, and all of a sudden, it's basically uh, a 10-point game. And so, in terms of this game, there's that perspective, but then there's also the Kentucky perspective, too. And you want to talk about hot and cold. How about Kentucky? On the one hand, you force six turnovers against Mississippi State. Six turnovers, which is an incredible testament to the defense. They absolutely deserve credit for the success that they had figuring out what the heck that air raid offense was going to do when it came to Kroger Field. But then on the flip side, the offense on the Kentucky side just is not very good, right? Like, like I know we have a lot of Kentucky fans listening. Some of you were probably at the game. 157 yards of total offense, uh, 73 yards passing, The play calling of Eddie Grand has been a hot topic for basically as long as I've been doing this podcast. It doesn't get any better. And so to me, I just look at it from this perspective. You know Tennessee's not turning the ball over six times. You know you're not going to have a bunch of short fields like you did last week. And can you generate enough offense to get things going against Tennessee and specifically on the road? My fear is that Kentucky probably can't, and that is why I actually do like Tennessee to win this game. It's one of my best bets. I will get to my bets in a minute, but that's kind of my fear in this game is like I just don't think Kentucky can generate enough offense to keep up with Tennessee. Tennessee by no means an offensive juggernaut, but I could see a final score of 20 to 10, 24 to 14, something like that with Tennessee winning and covering. All right, transitioning to a couple other quick games, and we'll get to my picks. We'll get to some other topics. Nick Nurse coming up, by the way. Great guest, Nick Nurse. 
Um, so uh, a couple other games, right? I don't want to spend too much time on them. Ole Miss-Arkansas, fascinating game for me. Obviously, look, Arkansas should be 2-1. and one. We talked about the boneheaded officiating decision in that game. They should be 2-1. and one. Uh, And Ole Miss, I think, is kind of an interesting position as well because they're coming off the Bama loss. They're beat up. And then Nick uh, Lane Kiffin says at his press conference Wednesday, oh, yeah, we got a bunch of COVID cases too. And I think that completely throws a monkey wrench into this game. I think it's hard to kind of figure out, okay, who's like going to be good and who isn't going to be good and all that stuff. It's hard to evaluate what this game is going to look like because of the positive COVID cases. And I obviously think, look, like a lot of it has to do with like who is positive, right? If Matt Coral, the quarterback, is positive, Ole Miss probably ain't winning this game. If it's a couple guys on their defense, they were very good anyway. So who knows, but I guess what I would say in terms of this game, my one big picture thought is kind of very simply this, is that I I just think that when I look at this game, one thing stands out to me, and it's something that I don't think anybody's really talking about, and what I mean by that is this. There is, I think, a sign of how Vegas thinks this game is going to go, and I try not to do too much gambling off the top because I know not all of you are gamblers, but I think it's important to look in this game at the over-under point spread. And the over-under is the number of total points Vegas expects to be scored in this game. And it started at like 76, 77. It's down a little bit, but it's still at 74, 75. And so why do I bring that up? If you do the math, by the way, a 75 over-under is basically, the final score is going to be like 40 to 35. And so why I bring that up as important for this game is because What Vegas is telling me with that over-under is this, is that Ole Miss will have more success exerting its will on Arkansas than the other way around. And what I mean by that is that if you watch these two teams play, and I obviously have, I love college football, I do this show, it's what I do, I do my Fox Sports radio show Saturday night. If you follow college football and you've seen these teams play, very contrasting styles of play. Ole Miss, I've talked about so much, not going to spend much time on it, but Score, 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 score. Our defense stinks. We got to keep scoring. Even if we're up 21 points in the third quarter, we got to keep scoring because our defense could let us down. We could lose this game. Arkansas has kind of been the exact opposite. Their defense has been phenomenal. Their defense has been excellent. And in a positive sign, the offense actually looked pretty good last week against Auburn. And so if you look at how Arkansas wants to win games, They want to win games more in the 28 to 24, 24 to 21 type range, similar to how they beat Mississippi State in week one, or week two, excuse me. And so I bring that up because to me, it feels like advantage Ole Miss. It feels like Vegas is saying, this is going to be a shootout. And I just don't know if Arkansas has enough weapons and enough firepower on this offense to successfully win a game playing that way. Now, it could change with COVID, and it could change uh, just, just with any number of things. But when I look at this game, I do go advantage Ole Miss just because of the simple fact that Vegas seems to think it's going to be really high scoring, and if it's really high scoring, it is advantage Ole Miss, and Ole Miss is a team that is more comfortable playing that way. I do think that it will probably be the most successful game for Arkansas offensively, but defensively, I think they're going to struggle with Ole Miss because everybody is Eileen Ole Miss in this game. Last little preview game, I'll get to my gambling picks, uh, is this. Texas A&M, Mississippi State. And I'll tell you this right now. 
This is the biggest stay away of the millennium for me. I would not bet one cent. You could give me $100 and tell me, go to Vegas and put it down for me. I wouldn't let you spend that money because I just don't think we know what we're going to get from either team. Texas A&M is coming off the biggest win of Jimbo Fisher's tenure, which basically means it's like the biggest win that any of the players have ever had since they got to A&M. We're talking top five team in Florida at home, players go wild, game-winning field goal. As time expires, everybody rushes the field. They're hugging. They're doing all that. Now they got to go on the road. Now they got to play at Mississippi State, who played about the worst game that they possibly could. I'm not, not about. They did play the worst game that they possibly could with six interceptions. K.J. Costello, two weeks after setting an SEC passing record, gets benched in the second half for uh, the kid Will Rogers, the backup. And so this is just a perpetual stay away from me. Will not be touching this game with a 10-foot pole. Um... And I won't be touching it. All right, so really quickly, I do want to give my gambling picks, though, before we get out of here. Uh, and not, not, not out of here. I got other topics to talk about. But gambling picks for this week. All right, here goes. And by the way, as always, they're available at AaronTorresOnline.com. That's where I po- post all my full write-ups. AaronTorresOnline.com. Also, you can find me on Instagram at AaronTorresPod. I post them there as well. Uh, and as I mention all the time, I should mention, if you want to gamble this weekend, always feel free to go to MyBookie, use promo code TORRES at MyBookie, and uh, you double your sign-up bonus. So first time using MyBookie, you want to spend 50 bucks betting on Bama, which I wouldn't because the game's going to be crazy, but, um, but they will give you $100 to play with MyBookie, promo code TORRES. Uh, but let's get into my picks, and the last two I'll save for the end because they're important. But first couple, uh, kind of quirky their first half line, so it's only for the first half. Clemson is favored to be up by at least 14.5 points in the first half. I actually like Georgia Tech to cover two and a half touch or two touchdowns in the first half. So, in other words, Georgia Tech has to be down by 14 or less going into halftime. The reason why is very simply this. I think Clemson coming off a big emotional home win to ask them to go on the road and be fired up against a decent but not great Georgia Tech team, I just don't see it. I'd also say Georgia Tech plays really hard, and Clemson, even in that win last week, I thought they were a little sloppy and nobody really talked about it. If you watch the game, they had a bunch of ugly, sloppy holding penalties along the offensive line, kicking problems, blocking problems, and yes, they dominated Miami, but I do believe that they have enough concerns where I will take Georgia Tech plus 14 and a half in the first half. Again, you can read about all these picks at AaronTorresOnline.com. Second pick, same theme, Pitt at Miami. I like Pitt plus six in the first half against Miami. And again, it's for the same reason. Miami is coming off an emotional, physical game against uh, Clemson. They're playing in a a 25% capacity stadium in Miami. There's going to be no buzz, no electricity, no energy. And they're playing a pit team that's 3-2, and but has lost their two games by a combined two points. So they lost by one point apiece each of their last two games. And Pitt, by the way, is really good on defense. They are number three in rushing defense in college football. The only teams that are better are, I believe it's Houston, who's played one game, 
and Georgia. So basically, Georgia's the only team that plays better run defense than Pitt. I like Pitt to cover the six in the first half. So those are my first two bets. Uh, Georgia Tech plus 14 and a half in the first half against Clemson. Pitt plus six in the first half against Miami. Moving to the SEC, I do like Tennessee minus six over Kentucky. Basically, that means by Tennessee has to win by a touchdown or more. I just don't trust the Kentucky offense. I really don't. Nothing personal. Terry Wilson's an incredible story coming back. But between his limitations, between the play calling, I don't think that they have enough offense to beat Tennessee, especially with Tennessee coming off a bye. Also in the noon window, Auburn at South Carolina. South Carolina, a three-point underdog at home. I actually like South Carolina. And I'll tell you this. I've never once, I don't think on this podcast, ever said anything nice about Will Muschamp. But his team plays really hard for him. They're scoring more than they did last year. How about this for a stat? They never scored more than 24 points in an SEC game all of last year. They've had at least 24 points in all three games that they've played this year, and they've played some good teams. They played Tennessee, they played Florida, and so I like South Carolina plus three as a home underdog in that game. Uh, so those are four of the picks. Also, Notre Dame, Louisville. Uh, this is going to be high scoring. Louisville can't stop anybody. Louisville gives up over six yards per play. Notre Dame scores. They're averaging 47 over their last two games, 42 points against Florida State, uh, 52 points against South Florida. I expect points and points and points and points and points. I think Louisville can cover, but I like the over of 64. Finally, these were two of my official picks that I made, and I put them on Aaron Torres online before we got news. I did have Bama minus six. I did have Ole Miss minus two. Obviously, if I had known about the issues at each school, I probably would have stayed away, but they are my official picks. If I was you, I'd wait until kickoff to see if Saban's coaching, what the line is. By the way, if you like Alabama, the line's probably going to go down in your favor, so be aware of that as we get more information about Nick Saban, probably not coaching. Um, so yeah, those are the six, so those, those are the seven picks. Okay. So it is, it is Georgia tech plus, uh, plus 14 and a half in the first half pit plus six in the first half against Miami. Uh, I do like South Carolina plus three against Auburn. I like Tennessee minus six against Kentucky. I like uh, Louisville, Notre Dame over in that game, and I did take Bama Bama minus six and Ole Miss minus two. However, as I said before, if I was you, I would not bet, or at the very least, just wait as long as you can before making those bets. All right, really quickly, do want to hit on a couple other topics before we get out of here, before we get to Nick Nurse. Uh, The first one is, it appears as though the one-time transfer rule is going to go into effect. Brett McMurphy reported that the NCA has decided uh, that they are going to you have the one-time transfer rule. In other words, every player will be allowed to transfer once without having to sit out. That rule should be approved in January, and it should go into effect next August 1st, 2021. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because I think anybody who listens to this show knows how I feel about it. I don't like the one-time transfer rule. I don't think players should be allowed to transfer without sitting out unless there is one unique circumstance, and that is if their coach is fired. And I've been pretty adamant about this from day one. 
if a player's coach is fired, I do believe they should be allowed to transfer, or not even fired, but it leaves the program. Let me explain why. It goes back to a conversation that I had on this podcast years ago when I first started. It was like episode two or three or four with Joel Klatt from Fox Sports. And when I talked to Joel, uh, what we talked about was this, is that so often when a, a, a coaching change comes, um, it affects kids that, that it's not their fault, right? So it affects a kid in a way that they have no control over. So say, for example, uh, this was an example from when I talked to Joel. But imagine, say, uh, being uh, an Arkansas football player when Brett Bielema was the head coach, right? You're recruited to play for Brett Bielema. Power style, running, you're, you're physical, you're tough up front. Uh, the receivers are big, strong, physical receivers. The offensive linemen are big, bulky guys. The running backs are big, powerful, physical running backs. Then Brett Bielema gets fired and Chad Morris comes in and he wants to play tempo and he wants smaller offensive linemen and he wants faster wide receivers. How is that fair to the kids in the program? And to take it a step further, it could negatively affect their entire careers, right? You're a sophomore. You think you're going to be going really high in the draft. All of a sudden, a new coach comes in. There's a new system. He wants to play his guys. He wants to play the young guys. He's got a five-year deal, so he doesn't really care about your last year on campus. All of a sudden, you get pushed to the side. That's not fair to you. So to me, I've always been an advocate of if a coach leaves, you should be allowed to, to, to leave as well. Now, the one rule I would say is you are not allowed to follow your coach to the next spot, right? So I'm just trying to think hypothetically here. Who was a new head coach this year? Um, so, okay, Tom Herman leaves Texas. I know he's not new this year. He leaves Houston for Texas. He can't just go recruiting off of his old roster to come with him to Texas. That I don't think is fair, but I do think all the players at his former school should be allowed to look at other schools if they want and I do think, by the way, I do think this might change some decisions by some of these administrators in firing people. If you know half your roster might leave, you might be a little more hesitant to actually fire a guy. However, with all that said, my opinion doesn't matter on this. And I can yell and scream and rant and rave, but ultimately it doesn't really matter because the rule is going to get changed and the rule is going to be that again, everybody gets one time to transfer in their college careers. And let me tell you just very briefly why I do not like this rule. It's because, very simply put, um, I think the tampering is going to be insane. I think the tampering is going to be insane, and I do think that it is adversely going to affect, uh, it is going to affect in a negative way both college football and college basketball. And college basketball has been going through this for a while, but for those of you who are huge football fans that are not basketball fans, let me tell you how it goes, right? Is that essentially it goes two directions. First, you have, if you're a small school, if in football you're Troy or Appalachian State or Toledo or UConn or UMass or UNLV or whomever, the big boys are going to be recruiting right off your roster, right? And I think that's how everybody kind of pictures this, is that essentially now the small schools will become the minor leagues for the big schools. So you go to Toledo for a year, for two years, you ball out, you're a freshman All-American. All of a sudden, you better believe that schools from Power 5 schools are going to be reaching out to you saying like, hey, dude, like you can stay another two years at Toledo, whatever, we don't care. But come to Bama, come to Ohio State, come to Michigan, Come ball out for us. Bigger stage, 100,000 people. You'll have a blast, this and that. 
That will happen, and I'm not picking on Ohio State or Michigan or Alabama, but everyone will tamper with players because it's what happens in basketball, and we've seen it in basketball for a while now. I also think something that nobody really talks about, I think it's going to have the reverse effect as well. And this is something I've definitely talked about on this podcast, but for people who are new, from a basketball perspective, basketball is so crazy, right? Because you have one bad, you come to school as a one and done, as a guy that's supposed to be gone after one year. If the coach doesn't play you, you want to transfer right away. And so I've talked about the fact that there were guys that haven't had the freshman year that they think they go to a Kentucky, a Duke, a North Carolina. By the middle of the season, people are reaching out to them saying, you going to stay at Kentucky and never get off the bench? you going to stay in North Carolina? And so I think the same thing is going to happen at Alabama and Michigan and Ohio State. I think everyone is so focused on the idea that Toledo and UMass and UNLV and uh, San Jose State become a feeder program for the small schools, but you got to understand the reverse is going to happen as well. Think about Alabama. They recruit you know, three, four, five-star defensive linemen every single year. That's on top of all the five stars that were ahead of them in previous recruiting cycles. So, I mean, you could be looking at a situation in Alabama where you have 10, 12, 15 five-star defensive linemen in one meeting room at any given time. And if you don't think that that five-star that doesn't get on the field in week one, game one, if you don't think there's going to be somebody from one of those smaller schools from not even Toledo and UMass, but from, say, Kentucky, from, say, South Carolina, from, say, Oklahoma State, from, say, Mississippi State, like, dude, you can stay at Bama all you want, but I'm just telling you, come here, you're going to start right away for us, you're going to ball out. And so I think that that kind of negative recruiting and that kind of tampering is going to happen. It's going to happen right off of guys' rosters where you don't think a coach is going to uh, post-game uh, handshake line Alabama versus Mississippi State. You don't think a coach is going to grab maybe a high school kid that he once recruited and say, dude, do you really want to stay there and back up for two more years? Come to Mississippi State, transfer out right now, we'll get you eligible in a year, and you could be starting for us next year. That is going to happen and I think it's going to have a negative effect on college sports in general. And again, I think my background in college basketball really helps this because this is something that's been going on in college basketball for years, and I think it's hurt the sport. I think it makes transfer like like recruiting interesting, but in terms of people tuning in, knowing the players, getting to know them, it's really hard for coaches to keep a roster together now. It's really hard. And on top of that, we now have data that shows that it frankly doesn't really help the players as well. The players that transfer up from the small schools, for the most part, they don't have success. I mean, think about it. One, you're transferring up a level. You're, being, you're now going to be asked to play right away, perform right away on a new school with a new campus with a potential coaching staff that you don't know. And we've seen it in basketball. Those guys traditionally don't have success. North Carolina in basketball this past season had the worst season in program history. They relied on two grad transfers. They brought two grad transfers up from the low level, and they said, oh, you know, well, this guy averaged 17 at this place, and that guy averaged 16 at that place. Yeah, and they sucked in the ACC. Hate to say it, it's the truth. So I think it's going to hurt the, the programs. I think it's going to hurt the players, where in a lot of cases they're going to transfer up and realize 
there's a reason I wasn't recruited to this level out of high school. I'm not this good. There's academic consequences. Obviously, if you're transferring from one school to another, all of a sudden some of your grades won't transfer over. I just don't like this at all. But again, for the hundredth time, it is not up to me. I have no say in it, so it doesn't really matter. But I think this is going to hurt college football. I think it's going to hurt college basketball. I don't like it. There's not much I can do about it, but I'll tell you this. I think everybody, if you're an Alabama football fan, you think, oh, I'll just recruit all the best players off the small schools. And if you're a Kentucky basketball fan, oh, I'll just recruit the best players off the small schools. Well, guess what? Those small schools are going to be recruiting your backup point guard as well. And so I think all the big school fans think, oh, this will be the greatest thing that ever happened to our program. I think the reverse is true as well, where I think the small schools are going to be recruiting off your roster. I would add this as well. I've talked about it in basketball. I think we're going to get to a point in the not-too-distant future where colleges don't even recruit high school players anymore. Because think about it. you got to bring in a high school player, right? you got to bring in a high school player. you got to deal with him for the first time being away from home. you got to deal with him for the first time uh, being expected to show up to class on his own, weight lifting on his own, all that stuff. you got to hope that he's good enough. And sometimes it takes two or three years to see the fruits of your labor. Now reverse that. And oh, by the way, If it doesn't work out, they can just leave after a year. Then on the opposite of that, you have a situation where you can bring in a guy, once he transfers in once, he can't leave, so you're stuck with him. He's older, he's more mature, he's been away from home, he's had success at somewhere else. I think we're headed to a not-too-distant future where some of the best programs in both college football and college basketball don't even recruit high school players. They just recruit off other people's rosters. I don't like it. But guess what? Your boy Hoodie AT has no real say in it. All right, last little topic. We'll get out of here. We'll get to Nick Nurse. Uh, And that is this. That is this. Is that, how about this first story? You know your boy AT is Mr. Las Vegas. Love Vegas. Go a couple times a year. Was there at the Pac-12 tournament when the whole world shut down in March. Went back in the summertime. Had a blast. Why do I bring it up? It's because... For the first time ever, we got word on Wednesday that Vegas is going to host the NCAA tournament. And we found out because um, the NCAA announced its future tournament sites. By the way, first day of full practice in college basketball on Wednesday. So that's freaking exciting. A couple weeks away now. Start getting some coaches on there. We'll get my boy Eric Musselman, maybe Nate Oates, maybe Rick Barnes. We'll see who we get on, Bruce Pearl. But practice started on Wednesday. And the NCAA announced all of the future NCAA tournament sites through, I think it's 2026. So they had already announced where the Final Four would be in 2021, 2022, and 2023. What they did was they announced the Final Four for 2024, 2025, and 2026. And they also announced where all the tournament games would be played otherwise. And for the first time ever, Las Vegas will host the NCAA tournament in, I believe, I think it's 2023, they will host the West Regional Final. It was actually pretty cool. I was reading about it. The reason that they're not hosting the first round is because so many many schools play their conference tournaments in Las Vegas that they thought it would actually deter fans from having to go back-to-back weekends. You ever been to Vegas? Back-to-back weekends at Vegas are tough. But I think this is really cool. I think this is a great moment. And for people who don't really understand why this is a big story, here's why. Is because up until now, Vegas has been forbidden for NCAA sports. 
because the idea being, well, you know, gambling, it's so it's so scary. And what happens with sports gambling? And it's so bad. We can't host an NCAA tournament there. We can't host a Final Four there. But what has changed is legalized sports gambling. And so what I think happened is, is that essentially the NCAA looked around and said, like, we're just being stupid now. We got legalized sports gambling in New Jersey. We let the NCAA host events in New Jersey. We got legalized sports gambling in Indiana. We let events go on in Indiana. We got legalized sports gambling in Illinois. We definitely have events in Illinois. Like, eventually, we just got to, like, put our guard down, let Vegas host these events. Oh, by the way, as I just mentioned, four conferences play their conference tournaments in Las Vegas. Um, So it's not as though we're not playing games there. And there's a bowl game in Vegas. And there's another bowl game that's being added in the future in Vegas. And so it was this idea of, oh, we can't play. It's so scary. What about sports gambling? And it's like, oh, wait a second now. We have sports gambling in like 12 states. And it's going to be in all 50 states here probably in the next 10 years. So let's just get going. But I think it's great for the sport. I think it's great for fans too. Right? Like part of co- following college sports, you follow your team on the road when you can't. And I know that not everyone's going to be able to hop up flight to Vegas on two days' notice when their team advances to the Sweet 16 to go play in Vegas. But if you think about it, it is one, a great situation for anybody on the West Coast. Obviously, if any of the West Coast schools get in, it's a short flight, an easy flight for an Arizona fan, a Gonzaga fan, a UCLA fan, a Washington fan, an Oregon fan. Frankly, it's not a bad flight from the Midwest either, where if, say, Kansas gets there, Texas gets there, Texas Tech gets there, it's, 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 it's a two-hour flight. So you have that going for you. Hotels are cheap. It's great. And what I would also say is, I think this opens up the door for a Final Four in Vegas in the future. And what's better than a Final Four in Vegas in the future? Because when I look at this, uh, for people, a lot of you have probably been to Final Fours, but for those who haven't, the Final Four is just, it's the best. It is the best. The whole whole college basketball world is there. Coaches that aren't coaching uh, all come in for the week. Uh, you have scouts, you have GMs, you have uh, uh, NBA people, you have AAU people. The whole basketball world gets there, but it's also a great event for fans. And again, I know a lot of you have been to Final Fours, but the city's different. You see everybody wearing their paraphernalia. You got the Kentucky fans over there, the Kansas fans over there, the Louisville fans over there, the UCLA fans over there, the UConn fans over there. Um, and it's just a great event city. And I, again, I go there three or four times, so I know the city like the back of my hand. But it's just an incredible event city, and I just think that it is such a great move for college athletics and college basketball specifically to bring the NCAA tournament there because I do think that it opens the door in the not-too-distant future to have a Final Four in Vegas. And I'm just telling you, there is going to be nothing better than a Final Four in Vegas, but I give the NCAA credit. Uh, big day for them because not only did they put in the one-time transfer rule, but they also have now, for the first time, NCAA tournament games in Vegas. All right, that's it for today's Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Uh, Well, that's it until I get to Nick Nurse here. But uh, I do want to get to Nick Nurse, because I have talked way longer than I was anticipating. So with that said... Let's get out of here. Reminder, if you're not subscribed, please make sure to do so. You can do it on iTunes. You can do it on the Podcast Addict app, Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn Radio. Wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure that you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Make sure to please rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like. All that good stuff does help us move up the iTunes charts. Make sure you're following on social media, at Aaron Torres Pod on Twitter, 
at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram, Aaron Torres Writer on Facebook, and uh, find us on YouTube. That is all for today's show. Shout out to my boy Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel who hates my voice. And now let's get really fun interviews. So real bad, let me do the quick thing on Nick Nick Nurse. Nick Nurse has a book out. It's called Rapture. We'll talk about it. Just a really fascinating guy. Everybody thinks, oh, first year head coach with Toronto last year. The dude had been a head coach for 25 years before he got to the NBA, dating back to his early 20s. So we talk about his career overseas. He actually coached Dennis Rodman for a few games in England. Uh, we talk about his time uh, getting to, to start it with the Raptors. It's just a really fun interview with a really, really fascinating guy. So I do think you'll enjoy it. He is Nick Nurse, the head coach of the Toronto Raptors. I think you'll love this. Uh, and that's it. So, with that said, let's get to my interview with Raptors head coach, Nick Nurse. All right, joining me via Zoom, very excited to have this gentleman on the show, uh, head coach of the Toronto Raptors, also author of the book, and I'm going to hold it up for people who do watch it on Zoom. It's called Rapture, 15 teams, four continents, one NBA championship, and how to find a way to win damn near anywhere. I love it. Nick Nurse, how you doing, my man? I'm good, Aaron. Thanks for having me on, man. It's a, it's, it's a long title, isn't it? It is. Well, that's why I had it in front of me. I didn't try to write it down or memorize it off the top. Speaking of which, can you name all 15 stops in your uh, uh, coaching career basketball uh, all across the globe? I, I I probably can. It's uh, it's it's there's a lot of lot of stops. When I I finished playing at Northern Iowa, I stayed there as a student assistant coach. Yep. Then I went to Derby, England, where as a player coach. Came back to Grandview University. Went to the University of South Dakota as an assistant. I went to the Birmingham Bullets, Ostend, Belgium, Manchester Giants, London Towers, Brighton Bears. Had a little bit of a Enid. Oklahoma storm in, in Enid, Oklahoma, in between in the summer times in there. Uh, came back to coach the uh, Iowa Energy, Rio Grande Valley, assistant at the Raptors, head coach at the Raptors. Did I miss any? You nailed them all, man. <laughs> That's like one of those Draymond, yeah, I can name all 43 guys drafted before me, and then you put them on the spot and he could do it. I love it. <laughs> What a, it, wasn't that, it wasn't that easy, and it's getting harder as the years go on, trust me. but Well, I'll tell you this. I think the Raptors are your last stop here for a while. It's incredible what you've done, but I, I do want to ask you about all the stops along the way because, you know, I think it's so fascinating. You know, we, we see you on TV as NBA fans, and, and everyone calls you, right, a quote-unquote first-year head coach last year, two seasons ago, second-year head coach this year. But one thing that I took out of this book, man, is like, you know, there's a, there's a saying it takes 10 years to make an overnight success. And it's like, you know, your, your journey is really unlike probably, frankly, anybody's in the NBA, not to say yours is better or worse, just certainly different but I feel like it prepared you for that moment in time when you did get the Toronto Raptors coaching job. Yeah, we, we, we said 27 year overnight success sure. is, is what we did. <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was for me just trying to get head coaching experience and, and listen, that's kind of what I first went to England for. I just wanted to find out if I was any good at it and I wanted to, you know, be able to call my own shots, get in front of a team um, and then try to learn the craft you know, you know, use the, use the games as a, as a laboratory to experiment, study, 
leadership, study sports psychology, study the X and O's, all, all the stuff that goes into coaching. And, um, you know, I, I always tell young coaches, man, there's nothing more valuable than that head coaching experience. Even if it's, even if it's in the backwaters or with a, a younger team or an AAU team or whatever, that there's a lot of experience there to be gained um, being the head coach. Yeah, it's funny. A friend of mine in my business is a friend of yours as well, Colin Cowherd. And, you know, he's talked to me and other people about kind of learning, you know, making his quote unquote mistakes on a small stage. So when he got to ESPN and eventually Fox Sports, you know, he had kind of kind of filed down the edges and smoothed things out. Do you feel like that's what your experience was? I mean, I'm guessing you probably made some mistakes that you learned from along the way. Uh, is that fair to say as well? Yeah, I, I mean, I for sure. I think that um, you not not only were you trying all kinds of things and 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 learning and like I was even experimenting with totally different systems of play that I didn't really believe in. Like one year, I I in England, I remember we full court pressed the whole year, and I you know I was doing the I was doing that sub in sub out flip, <laughs> you know, just I just wanted to learn it and see what I could gather from it, um, and I gathered a lot from it but you but didn't it was, like it probably <laughs> well didn't like it as a full-time thing but all but but still it, it, it there, there's sometimes and and you even even this year in a game or two where it's pretty much you think it's over and you say to the guys hey our last chance here is to full court press for about six minutes and then we're either going to be back in the game or we'll throw in the tie you know and, and we pulled a couple of them off so so i think you know that's useful even though i spent a whole season working on it it was useful for a couple wins this year but yeah, I think, I think all of it, like in a, in a microcosm, even, even there was, there was media to deal with. There was going on television in, in Britain. There was, you know, there was, there was things that you have to be able to handle a lot of the things other than just coaching the game uh, each and every night. So you had one line that was a throwaway line that kind of fascinated me. I wish you went into more uh, uh, detail on your first job. You were a player coach in England and you said you had to go out and drink beer with the fans after the game. Is that true? Well, in England, each of these these sports centers, they weren't really arenas, they were they were kind of sports centers. Each one of them had a had a pub in it, you know, tip, typical okay. of, of of England and Britain there's a pub on every corner, but you know, these these sports centers, they people were playing badminton, they were outside playing tennis, they were whatever doing all kinds of stuff and they'd go have a drink almost like a almost like a country club setting, but okay. uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty much a requirement for both teams, uh, coaches and players to go up to the pub after the game. It was a, and the chance for the fans and sponsors and that to mingle with the players. Yeah. Yeah. What about when you, you were the, do I remember correctly? You were the owner of a team in England while you were also coaching. How did that come about? Yeah, I was I was just about uh, ready to go to Spain to take an assistant coaching job, and they they kind of came up with this: Hey, coach the team, have have part ownership, be the GM, do everything. And and uh, this was in Brighton, England, and I and I decided to do it. It was um, not the wisest decision. You know, you know, you say you learn <laughs> a lot of things, uh, learn a lot of things, but um, uh, again, just just trying to put my heart and soul into it and keep coaching and do some do some things. We had some. We had some cool moments there, but it was it was tough coming back from that. It was uh, it was uh, definitely a hard work to do all that stuff. What was the biggest thing that you learned of being an owner in addition to a uh, head coach? That it's not easy. <laughs> the business of the business of basketball and and marketing and selling sponsorships and tickets and all that stuff is 
is uh, its own separate entity, and and there's not a lot of teams having success with it outside the NBA. Yeah, I think Mark Cuban has talked about, you know, it's like the stylish in cool thing to say, oh, I want to be an entrepreneur now. And then you got to do it and you got to meet payroll and you got to do this and you got this HR problem. You got that. And he's like, you know what? It's really not for everybody. You got to have a certain type of uh, personality and all that. What about when you coached Dennis Rodman during your time in England? It was amazing. Yeah. It was amazing. He'd just come out of the big brother house. <laughs> which is a television show, right? And, and there was like 40 million people a, a night watching this in England. So it was a really big deal. Uh, just, just to give you an idea, I mean, normally we'd issue about three press credentials for a, a regular season game in England. And, and we had 178 the night Rodman, the first wow. night Rodman came from all over Europe. Uh, and he, he was amazing. Uh, took about six bodyguards to get him from the car to the rent. There, there were so many people outside the arena. Um, he came in and threw a backdoor pass, the first possession, just like he did. And he, he took a charge on the other end. The place was going crazy. And he, he played well. And it was, it was quite an experience. Really liked I really like him. Well, I was going to say, you saw him in Vegas at a summer league a few years ago, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, last summer. Yeah. Did he, nice uh, did, did he have any memories? Of, uh, he obviously remembered you. I mean, sure. he, we stay in touch a little bit. I, we had got a big hug. I got a, I got a picture. I had to get a picture with him and, and um, well, certainly was a long ways away from the last time I saw him in Brighton, England to after it was just weeks after winning the NBA title. So it was kind of cool to see him and, and uh, yeah, stay in, a little, and stay in touch with him. We, we, we communicate a couple of times a year. Awesome. You know, another guy, frankly, from those Bulls teams, you know, you spent, well, you opened the book, but you spent on the book again, it's called Rapture. Uh, it's available now. Uh, but you, you talk about the role that Phil Jackson played for you just to be kind of a sounding board. Uh, you open the book with it, you get into it in greater detail later, but you get named the Raptors head coach. Um, and you get a chance to go sit down with, with Phil Jackson. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, Alex McKechnie, who's our head of sports science, worked for Phil, I think, for five years at the Lakers. And as soon as I got the job, he, he came into the office the day, the day of or, and, and said, hey, you want to talk to Phil? You want to get together with Phil? And I said, sure, man. I'm like, I studied all the triangle and all the stuff for years when I was a young coach. I'd love to, I'd love to go talk to him. And we linked it up, went out to see him, uh, ended up spending three days out in Montana, Beautiful, beautiful spot out there in Montana, and we talked a lot of basketball and leadership, and it was a, it was cool. It was kind of mind mind blowing for me, you know. Uh, really, really would be somebody that I really admired and looked up to as a as a young coach growing up. I mean, everybody was enamored with the Bulls. Sure. Uh, back in the '90s, when I was a young coach, you know, I got out of college in 1990, and they were just starting all their runs, and I was studying the coaching profession. So obviously, I did a lot of studying the Chicago Bulls and Phil Jackson. Obviously, you know, he's into the Zen and all the spiritual stuff. What outside of basketball, or maybe it was something basketball related? Like, what was the either the one pinch me moment or the coolest part about spending a couple of days? I, I'm. I think we'd all be fired up to spend a couple of days in the woods with Phil Jackson. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I, I would say the pinch me moment happened right away. We, we met at a coffee shop. We sat there for about an hour and a half and, and uh, it was kind of closing up the coffee shop. And, and, and he said, Hey, jump in my truck. And I got out there and he drove down the road about a half a mile. It was, ch it was cherry season. There. <laughs> he pulled over at this stand on the side of the road and got this huge bag of cherries 
and plopped it between us in the truck and he rolled down both windows and we drove around for the next couple hours. He was giving me a history lesson of the area and we were eating cherries and spitting the seeds out the window. And I was kind of sitting there going, I'm not, you know, it's Phil, Jackson. It's Phil yeah. Jackson I'm riding around with, you know, and it was, it was a little bit surreal there for sure. Any basketball, I mean, obviously you're talking basketball for three days straight. I mean, you're talking life too, but, but what kind of basketball stuff were you guys kind of talking about? Well, he, you know, he's, as you mentioned already, he's got the big spiritual side to him. He, he did, you know, talk a lot about the basketball gods and things like that, but he also, you know, he, he, he kind of hit it head on with um, talking about how pushing the players and driving them and how you got to, how you got to, you know, make the decisions that are best for the team always, you know, that's what you've been hired to do. But he also said that, that you got to make sure you understand the compassion part of it, that um, you got to understand where they've come from and what they're going through sometimes, you know, you can't always, can't always be pushing hard. Well, and that was something I've really enjoyed about the book was you mentioned this really four or five times throughout the book, but, you know, I think we all think of sports as this, you know, put yourself before, put the team before yourself and everybody's got to sacrifice. And like, I think the coaches that we all grew up playing for, uh, you know, that was the message, right? Like, like there's nobody bigger than the team, all that stuff. And you really mentioned like one of your core philosophies is really that, yes, we all have team goals, but I, as the coach also have to be understanding and open to the individual goals of the players. And frankly, maybe it's something that you talk about amongst your peers, but I've never really seen a coach be so vocal about understanding that it isn't just about the team, that it is about the individual. And again, I told you kind of before we start, I got a lot of buddies in coaching that I know are going to love listening to this. What exactly is that philosophy? Where does it come from? And, and, and how did you get to that point of that understanding? Well, I think a lot of my training put me into that. Like, you know, I went over to England in 95 as a, I think I was about 26, 27 years old. And, and um, most of these guys were, were happy to be playing, but they weren't making a lot of money in England. And right away, we kind of would always be looking down to heck even Belgium or Spain or Greece. You know, these guys could go make, you know, some serious money in some of these countries. So kind of immediately I was like, listen, we got to, we got to help you guys make a better living. I got to, I got to do his best. We got to do all work together here. So you guys can all increase your value in the marketplace. And then that kind of was what I did. I tried to move those guys from England to Belgium and Belgium to Germany and Germany to Spain or whatever. And then, then I end up in the minor leagues and well, nobody wants to be in the D league, right? The, the league, the league that nobody wants to be in, right? And everybody's trying to move. And that was the same thing. I was just really trying to focus in on getting these guys moved on and up to the NBA and we had we had tons of call-ups so I just think my training and the places I was coaching kind of made that um you know put it in the forefront for me and it doesn't change at this level you know um the guy wants the next contract or a bigger contract or he wants to go from a rotational player to a starter or a starter to you know all-star or whatever you're const constantly trying to figure out ways to increase these guys value and that's really where it comes from do you think that nowadays maybe more than ever and you know we do the whole thing of oh things are so different than they used to be but you know as somebody who again I told you before I do a ton of college hoops and I know a lot of these guys and they'll tell you John Calipari will be straight up if I don't do what's best for my players if I try to do what's best for me it's going to burn me in the long run because if I try to keep a kid here another year, that kid's going to say, you're not looking out for me and that's going to hurt me with the next kid. I mean, is that just where 
maybe coaching was always there and it just wasn't as out there, but I feel like this is almost a newish philosophy really over the last eight, 10, 12 years. Well, I'm not sure if sure. it's a new philosophy or not, but what I would say is this is like, I could never, like, I just, it's not in my makeup, right? It's just sure. not in my makeup to, and again, maybe it's just part of my training. Like, like, like if I'd get a call from a big club in Europe, or let's say I'd get a call from an NBA GM, Sure. Talking about some of your players, and I'd just be like, you know, we could be helping them pack, pushing them out the door. You know, I mean, yeah, we were gonna get our butts kicked two nights later because we're losing our best two players or something like that. But I, I just not really in my makeup to ever even think that way. Um, and and I think it ends up helping you, right? Like like uh, Calipari says too. There's there's for us once we started moving guys up, I think we started finding ourselves with a lot more people wanting to play for us, right? A lot more agents, a lot more calls, a lot more GMs, everybody, you know, once they saw we really cared about player development and we were moving some guys through and up, I think it started building the program even, even bigger. Very good. You know, obviously now at the NBA level, and we hear a lot of stuff from the outside and you can tell me if I'm hundred percent wrong, but a lot of it is, ego management and that's not in a bad way everybody has an ego etc uh you know one of the things i found interesting is you know you really make it a point in the book to really say you know i i, I try to kind of ease off my guys i don't do you know i don't lead the film sessions i let my assistants do it uh, i think i got to a point i just finished last night where you said something to the effect of i don't I, I choose about four, five, six times a year and no more where I really jump on them. I mean, is that just from trial and error from being a head coach for 27 years or where do those philosophies come from? Yeah, I mean, I believe strongly in kind of uh, hiring good people and letting them use their talents. But like, oh, we're talking about your staff. Like, my staff's incredible and I want them to go out there and coach. Right? I can't I can't be running every session and running every drill and running. I mean, I could, but it's no fun for them. Uh, I think it would would uh, stunt our team's growth, uh, certainly would stunt our coaches development and growth. Um, and they get tired of hearing my voice anyway. I mean, I think one of the things I mentioned in the book is my my voice is a finite resource. You know, there's, all, there's only so much I, they want to hear it during a season. Um, so I try to save it and, and you're right. I've probably learned from over talking, uh, over trying to over motivate over volume, <laughs> whatever <laughs> it is. Right. And, and you just try to be a little quieter and pick and choose your moments. And last year, I really, really wanted to do that. I wanted to save a lot of my stuff till the playoffs. When you get the Raptors job, um, you know, you talked about really just frankly, what we've already talked about, so if it's repetitive, I apologize, but, you know, you said, I've been waiting 27 years, 26 years, 25 years, whatever it was at this point, and I'm going to be myself. I mean, that's something that I find as I cover sports is guys get that big boy job, and it's like, well, I got to do this, or I got to act a certain way, and it, it felt, again, it, it's the same question in a different verbiage, but it just feels like you're very comfortable in your own skin, and I'm guessing that comes from, again, you've done this. It, you, you might be a first-year or second-year NBA head coach, but you've been doing this for 30 years now. Yeah, probably going into that, Aaron, I had a thousand job or thousand games under my belt, right? And that's that's official, somewhat official, you know, in a league that somebody was keeping track in. And there was probably another thousand unofficial from summer leagues and 
and basketball without borders and European all-star league camps and wherever Adidas nation, whatever I could get my hands on a group of players. I was trying to do that again, to just get more experience. And the experience I was trying to look for was trying to uh, develop chemistry, develop roles quickly, have some methods that I could teach quickly, you know, even if it's just a week long camp or something and, and things that they, you know, they could understand and go out there and execute quickly. Um, just trying to hone all those, all those skills, um, doing it over and over, man. And that's, that's uh, helps. But the other thing I'd like to say is this is Masai Ujiri and Bobby Webster uh, here at the Raptors really pushed and wanted some, someone who was innovative. They wanted me to do some different things. And I can't tell you how far that goes when, when your bosses are saying, man, go out there and, well, go out there and do some of the stuff you, you, you've told us you've done way back <laughs> sure. when. You know what I mean? Let's sure. let's see what happens, man. You know, if it works, keep it, put it in a toolbox. If it doesn't, we'll crumple it up quick and get rid of it and move on to the next one. So that that helps too. So, okay, so I'm going to ask a tough question here, and I, I apologize in advance, but I am curious. You know, you talk about the opportunity to get that Raptors job, and Dwayne Casey's let go, friend of yours. It's nothing personal. The organization feels like they need to move on. And you don't really say in the book what you believe or what Masai Ujiri and the, the other management at Toronto told you as to why you got the job. Because I'm just going to tell you, you don't care. But in the media, idiots like me at the time when you were hired were saying, why are you promoting this guy when you just fired uh, you know, the, the, the head coach off of, of his staff, his former boss? And we were all wrong. You and Masai look very smart right now. But what do you believe that they saw in you uh, to give you that opportunity to, to be the head coach of the Raptors? Well, I mean, it's, it's okay. It's a good question. I actually had to look up um, the other day. I was filling out some paperwork. I had to look out the date I got hired. And sure, I went online to get the exact date for some paperwork. And I, the first story I clicked on was a couple of sports guys just going <laughs> about why in the hell, what you just said, why in the hell they hire this guy? Um, you know, first of all, like um, – I thought I was going to be a head coach uh, going into uh, two seasons ago. I was getting, gotcha. I was getting uh, contacted by most of the teams that had jobs open. Um, really surprised. I thought, you know, we got the season ended. We they had the postseason press conferences. I thought, I thought I was really surprised when they, when they did decide to let, to let coach Casey go. Um, and they, and they, you know, they asked to get ready. We're going to interview you. It was a long process. The first one. And I just, tried to, you know, say, listen, there's a lot of really good, there's a lot of really good things here. We, you know, we win in a lot of games and these are the couple of little things I might add or change or try different. And, and I think that there was some stability there was probably the big reason because there was going to be a lot of players coming back and there was some success. There would be another reason. And I don't know, I guess I just convinced him in the interview that I, that I had the experience and, and whatever to hang in there and do the job. Fantastic. Last couple of questions. I know you got to run here to do some other interviews. The first one, uh, you tell this great story in the book, Kawhi Leonard, new to the team. We all know how it ended. Um, but, you know, one, you get him on the ex you get him on the whiteboard when you first meet him and you guys click instantly. But then you tell a story about in a film session, I think it was early to middle of the season where he hasn't really said much. And all of a sudden, uh, Kawhi speaks his his what he has to say. And the rest basically is history at that point. Yeah, it's a it's a great it's a great story. Um, 
we were off to a great start, but we'd lost a couple in a row. And, uh, and we, I think we may be 13 and four or something like that off a couple losses. We're having the film and, and um, the, the discussion is going that we need to pass the ball more. We need to, you know, there was some people saying, yeah, sometimes we just need to pass for the hell of it. Just, you know, just swing, swing it side to side, just for the, just for the hell of it. And, you know, all, it was kind of getting excited this side of the room, you know, all the second unit, third unit guys were all getting fired up. And then Kawhi said, Hey, uh, I, I ain't passing for the hell of it. <laughs> just, like, just like dead quiet. And uh, he said, my job's to score or to draw multiple defenders, and then I'm going to pass, and it's your job to score. And, it, and it, was, it was like the perfect kind of thing that needed to be said, and for him to kind of introduce himself to the team that way, and, it, and, and that was that's a great story. Great story. Fan, fantastic. Uh, real quick, how, when did you – maybe you felt from the day training camp opened, but when did you feel like this team – is good enough to hold that Larry O'Brien trophy at the end of the year because it felt like as, as an outside observer watching from a distance that it was just one of those deals where you kept building momentum, the game seven shot against Philly, fall down early to the Bucks, bounce back, on and on and on and on. Yeah, I think, I mean, listen, you go into it. I think, I think uh, we went into training camp. You know, I was certainly telling them that, listen, I've been hired – to, to win the title here. We're good enough. We got the players. Now it's, it's, it's a long process. And um, what I wanted to tell them early on was we, we, we need to kind of take this process and become play our best basketball in April, May, and June, right? This is, this is a, uh, a long-term thing. It's a long season. Um, but I would say this, we, we went down 0-1 to Orlando. Um, and in game two, we came out and, and beat them by about 30, five or 38 or something and put a defensive performance for 48 minutes on that I had never seen before. And uh, I went to the team and said, if we're going to play defense like this, we can go anywhere we want to go. And that was probably my first realization that we were, we were, we were going to be there and we were going to have a chance with, with a great defensive kind of mindset. Last question, I'll let you go. You got other calls here. The book is called Rapture, and it really is not just about these last couple seasons in Toronto, but your entire career. What do you hope readers, listeners to this show, whatever, what do you hope they get out of the experience of reading your book? And I'm just going to tell you really quick, Coach, I've read a lot of BS coaches books where they don't really say, spend 200 pages not really saying anything. Clearly, I think anybody listening knows I learned a lot about you, a lot about philosophy, a lot about your background. I enjoyed the hell out of it, and I'm not just saying it because you took time to speak with me, but what do you hope that people get out of it when they take, pick up the book Rapture? Well, I think it's, um, you know, uh, it's, it's the journey that, that, that you're on, right? You're, you're, you got all these little jobs you're doing or whatever jobs you're doing on your way, maybe up the ladder, maybe not, but if you get the chance, you want to be prepared, right? It's, it's lo I loved each and every one of those teams I coached. They meant the world to me at the time. Um, I was trying to learn as much as I could each and every season. And if I ever got a shot at a big job like the Raptors, I was going to be ready for it. Fantastic. The book again is Rapture, 15 teams, four countries, one NBA championship, and how to find a way to win damn near anywhere. Coach Nurse, this was a lot of fun, man. Uh, I know you're busy. Hope to do this again in the future, but – Thank you for the time, man. Genuinely appreciate it. No, thank you, Aaron. Good job, man.